Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Zach Bryant and Chris Haskell. How are you doing today, guys? Ooh. A little tired, but good. Good, good stuff. Anyone, any any tidbits this week? We usually have a have a little tidbit before we get into the nitty-gritty. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you have anything, Zach. This month for me, August in general, every single weekend we have guests. So I'm I'm just tired. And we're only at the second weekend, I think. <laughs> We've got three more or something like that. And I'm already kind of dreading this month a little bit. Not not to sound antisocial. I love I love family and I love family friends, but uh, it's just a lot at once. <laughs> I was kind of the same last weekend. It was kind of manic. I, me and me and Neve went up to went for a city break on the Friday night to stay in a hotel and just get away. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with restrictions kind of lifting here in Ireland, it was the first time I had been away, stayed in a, like a hotel somewhere that wasn't my home in like nearly a year. Wow! So um, went up to a hotel and had some went out for a nice meal, had some drinks, was great. And then the following the Saturday, we got home, and about. We had about three hours to clean our house and shower and stuff before guests arrived for our housewarming party. So we had a pretty hectic like 48 hours last weekend. So last Sunday was just a godsend to just sit out and do nothing all day. Can't wait. That'll be September. Actually, sorry, uh, September 10th, I'm I'm knock on wood. I'm coming to uh, the UK. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. We're going to, I mean, if if we're allowed in the country, if America doesn't mess it up, we're going to be there um the 10th to uh, to the 24th cool you have to wave as you're flying like, over ireland i don't live in the uk but you know you can as you're flying over ireland just give me a little wave and i'll, exactly. I'll, wave, and I'll wave back <laughs> exactly yeah i wish we could take a train to see you we'll have to figure that out but maybe not this yeah time. we'll figure yeah. it out yeah <laughs> i only say that because i have a i know a girl who i run like a, help run a facebook page with she's from ireland and I mistakenly have said she, the UK to her like four times. And I'm like, it's not the UK. And I have to remember it's Northern Ireland. I'm surprised you, have, you haven't gotten like a, an IRA signed bomb in your door yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming if you keep up with that stuff. He tell people he lives in Virginia. <laughs> they keep trying to find him in Virginia. He's yeah, like, like, yeah, I'm there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, look, we'll crack into the first film this week. So uh, we're going to be talking about the Aichi Yamamoto film uh, Belladonna of Sadness. Um, came out in 1973, Japanese. Uh, is all Japanese animated films called anime or anime? I'm not well versed in anime. I mean, this, this guy was kind of like one of the founding team of Astro Boy, right? So I think it's fair to, for this conversation to, to stay with anime. Okay, cool. I just, I didn't know if anime was a particular you know, if there had to have a particular style, because this does not fit what you would call the typical anime style in any way. Um, So I didn't know. But yeah, it's a Japanese animated film from 1973. Um, Super, uh, maybe controversial film in a way, just due to its content. Um, It's very interesting. Uh, I'm not going to come out and say it first. Like, I I didn't love the film. but yeah, I'm interested to see what you guys think, and I I, I want to go I want to get Chris to go first, was only because the only reason I know this film exists is because you talked about it on one of our sort of earliest episodes because you had watched it from Arbello. Yeah. So let's let's jump in with you, Chris. Uh, did you did you watch it again for the film club? No, <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I I mean I did like it. Uh, that's not why I'm saying that. I, it's just there's only so much. You, I think you can take of this uh, of the subject matter here in the screen of, of you know like rewatching it. Um, 
just objectively, I think it's kind of, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit about they shoot pictures uh, more, more recently now, and uh, it's not on the list, which I think is interesting. Um, there are many films that are worse than this, I think, that are on the, the, the top 19,000 films of all time. Yeah, I'm um, surprised considering, you know, the, the, the sheer volume of films on that list that doesn't show up at all. Yeah. So part of it is, I think, so when we were interviewing the Arbellos slash Death Crocodile team, um, they said it was $150,000 to restore this and the very expensive restoration uh, and very involved restoration. And all of a sudden now, as early as 2021, it's starting to pop up on some lists because people are kind of rediscovering the film. So I have a hunch it's going to be on next year's, if not the year after that. I think Arbellos is kind of doing the um, the movie Lord's work, so to speak, in, in getting awareness to this. Uh, I mean, anyways, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think high level, I, I, I kind of talked about it initially. I was sort of heartbroken when I saw this. And at the same time, completely transfixed by the animation. So I've never quite seen animation like this before. Uh, and I think it's, it's stuck with me now for uh, almost a year. I forget exactly when I saw it, but at least six months. It's it stuck out to me, and I I don't think it's a film I'll ever forget. So before I go too much more, Zach, what about you? Um, I, I'll kind of go with what I kind of wrote down when I did my letterboxed review and what we talked about in the discussion. This is a film like if you were to give me the steals of this thing in like a coffee table book, maybe not all of them, leave out a few of them, but. I would really enjoy, like, I think that's enjoyable. I think it's so well put together in that mm-hmm. sense. Like, I, I do think, like, it, it's hard to, in some, like, especially in the early parts of the film, it's really hard to call it animation because a lot of it is just still pictures. A lot of it. It does get more into animation as it goes. But at the very beginning, I was like, this is almost slideshow-esque. And it would, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's old, but, you know, limitations there and and, you know, lack of money and everything else. But beyond like looking at it i the uh, and chris i don't know if you'll connect with me on this the one thing it kind of reminded me of i didn't like it as much as this but I, it reminded me for some reason of the witch who came from the sea in a sense okay go on i'm with you but, well just like the idea like you know she is um just kind of go into a little bit of the plot of this is you know she goes she she's sexually assaulted and then the devil allows her to like come back and get revenge on people and whatnot and you know while it's not as direct as that and which came from the sea a lot of what the girl on that goes through is because of her own sexual assault and you know Mm -hmm. is she supernatural is she not that sort of idea and you know it's a little bit more forward here that it is but and then you know just uh, of course it has a lot more of I, i would say very poignant ending with belladonna but I don't know. I just kind of made that connection when I was watching it that it felt kind of similar to that in ways. Super interesting. There's parts of Belladonna that would uh, that maybe would be if, if they had started to explain where this woman came from and which it came from the sea. It, it could be something like this. Like she could have made a deal with the devil, or she could have somehow like there could she could have had some magical powers because that movie like she was able to do things in her dreams in a way, right? Or like it was kind of mm-hmm. hard to tell if she was dreaming or if she like had actually gone over and killed some of these folks. But it seems like there is some mystical kind of powers in that movie somewhere that weren't fully explained. Um, so anyways, yeah, all right. No, I, I would have never made that connection, but I like that you did. I, I kind of, I think that's, that's an interesting one. 
I think obviously I, I apologize. I should have uh, read the, the the plot out at the start when when I sort of started talking about the film. But you know, it starts out plot wise. I'm just going to talk purely about the plot. The animation I we can sort of talk about separately because it's it's kind of its own beast in this film. Um, the plot was kind of where it lost me, um, rather than the animation, which I thought was in, was really really well put together. It was really really incredibly drawn, mm-hmm. and you know just sort of just gets better and better throughout the film. Mm-hmm. It's kind of actually now that I'm thinking about it, the plot and the animation are on this weird sort of axis on a time on a you know on a graph for me where the better the animation gets, the worse the plot gets. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, that's, that's kind of where it goes for me. Like it starts off your pretty standard rape revenge story. Mm. Woman is raped. She, you know, decides to come, you know, get back at her attackers. And then Belladonna just goes completely psychedelic and, and, and crazy and political with it. Um, I thought having it set during sort of pre-revolution France was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this idea where, you know, the, the, the Lord had power over the the, um, the the serfs and everything like that. I thought, you know, that was an interesting set, especially for a Japanese film. I was very confused at the start because, you know, they were being called Jean and Jean. And I was like, I was expecting it to be set in like feudal Japan or something. Right. So I was super confused at the start. And then I kind of got, OK, for whatever reason. They've they've set this in medieval France. That's cool. That's fine. Uh, I know a bit about that to be able to sort of put the context of, you know, what, what what's going on, especially with the war aspect and everything like that. That was all fine, but yeah, the film it just it just lost me about halfway through. It's just I was just like okay, I'm 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 already done with this film. I was like an hour in. I was like, yeah, this film can be over now. That's okay. I, I've gotten what I want from this film. I've I've gotten everything I need to know about it, and then it just kind of went on for another hour. Um, but yeah, like gorgeous film and cool music. That's not what I expected to come out of. Like when I sat down to Belladonna Sadness, I didn't expect like a cool, groovy, psychedelic rock soundtrack. You know, like you could have like supplanted the soundtrack from Fantastic Planet and swapped it around, and you wouldn't even know. I wasn't right. expecting that. That was cool. I liked that, but. Yeah, no, nah, the, the plot didn't really do it for me as it, as it went along. There's these type of movies that I'll watch, and this is one of them, where I swear, like, halfway through, you feel like you got drunk and you just lost everything, like, lost the entire plot of what's going on. <laughs> and then that's what, it, I agree with you there, Adam. I, I feel like, like, like I liked it, and I, I, I would say I liked it more than disliked it, but yeah, the it's hard for the only thing to hold your attention is the music's really good, the animation looks good, um, it looks, you know, uh, going back to looks again, it looks interesting, you know, but that can only carry you so far, at least for me, it can only carry me to a point. And then I'm just kind of zoning out and I'm like, what's going on anymore? So that, uh, I think y'all, I can't remember if I talked about this the first time we were chatting about the film, but this was part of a trilogy for this guy, this Aichi Yamamoto. So he did, uh, let me see which one he did first. He did a version of Cleopatra. Okay. In 1970, and then he did a version of Aladdin in 1969. Okay, so A Thousand and One Nights was first, which was a, an X-rated kind of sex, uh, I, I guess, adult version of the Aladdin tales. Okay. Then that was fairly successful, so then he made one about Cleopatra that was also X-rated. And then in 1973, he made this. So I think where, like, 
if I haven't seen him, I just saw a trailer. I was curious. I saw a trailer for Cleopatra and and a thousand and one nights, much more traditional kind of animation style. Um, uh, the characters don't just like kind of dissolve into the background and all the stuff that goes on in Belladonna. It's much more sort of traditional kind of cell animation. Um, well, could you explain, like, just curiosity, and you may not know since you haven't seen them, what makes this a trilogy? Just there are three animated movies that are made by well, this I'm, particular guy. Is there a thematic element? or I'm just, just wondering curious. this now, because obviously this kind of seems like an outlier, because Cleopatra is obviously based on real life. Aladdin's a famous story. Even, the, even though Cleopatra's a real person, you know, her affair with Mark Anthony is kind of like canonical stories. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I might be completely out of the rails here, but is this kind of like a weird version of Joan of Arc? Okay. Because that's the French name is Jean d'Arc. Okay. And the main character I've... here is called Jean, and they burn her at the stake. That's and then she. An amazing point. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even is think this is this just a fucked up Joan of Arc? Except That's, for she's getting voices from, I guess, the devil. The devil rather than God, yeah. I really want that to be true now. Yeah, because that would make more sense. Because that's what I was confused about when you were telling me about the other two. I was like, what connection does this one have? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. I mean, it. so centuries later, the influence of John's spirit initiates the French Revolution. And I mean, yeah, because this is like um, the people who I, I, I might be misremembering. So please correct me. It's been a few weeks now. Um, the people who sexually assaulted her were like higher ups, too. Right. Like, yeah, they were the the, 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 the lords of the land. Yeah. It, was, right. it was this kind of thing, this prima nocta style ritual thing where the lord of the land, the flower, the, you know, the brides on their wedding night, that kind of thing, um, which I, I I don't know how common this was in medieval france or not i think prima nocta sort of is more viking that's more of a vikings thing if i remember correctly this idea of prima nocta but um yeah i don't don't associate yeah i don't associate that with france and italy and stuff as much maybe it was but you know it's interesting i I haven't seen the commentary i really didn't want to revisit the film Mm. uh it right away i just because it's hard to watch i mean you know the rape scenes although they're not I guess, excuse me, not safe for work here, but just to just to illustrate the point, although they don't show exactly penetration in the sense that you would think about rape if it was filmed with live people, yeah. they're very explicit, right? And there's a lot of the imagery of the red and like the pulsing red and like the things that explode and like just the way that it's actually animated for the rape scenes is really tough to watch or what's for me. Yeah, um, it's, it's extremely abstract, you know, I, there was a obviously when, when this film was picked, you know, I said to you guys, I'm not going to watch this film. Yeah. Because I know what happens in it. And even though, like you said, you know, the imagery is very strong, it is abstract. So mm-hmm. if you are someone listening and maybe triggered by rape scenes, which that's completely understandable because I am, I don't, there's, there's a reason I'll never watch Irreversible because I know what happens in that film. Yeah. Um, this one, it's like I'm not gonna try and say it's not bad to watch or anything, but um, it's it's abstract and it's an interesting way that they portrayed it. Yeah, and so mostly because of that, I haven't seen the commentary, but it would be super interesting to see if he makes that connection to Joan of Arc. Um, this, is the this commentary would... done by him or is it a scholar? 
Oh, sorry. I don't know if I, I can check really quick. Uh, but he was very, very involved. He, so I did watch the interview with him, with the director that they, Arbelos got him to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, But it was mostly just about some of the frustrations of making the film. And he's got kind of a funny story where he talks about how he was supposed to be in charge of the marketing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they told him, like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. We'll put you in charge of the marketing. So he kind of agreed to make this for this for his old studio. And then when he, like, I guess they kind of snuck around and, and started putting this in some theaters and, and he saw a poster and it said from Astro Boy to Belladonna. And it really made him mad because <laughs> he was like, Astro Boy is for kids. This is not for kids. Like, what is wrong with Could you? Could you imagine taking your kid to this but thinking, ah, oh, they loved Astro Boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, um, <laughs> I, 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 we're not, we're not insane. Someone else <laughs> feels our way too. This is from a review for Belladonna of Sadness from RogerEbert.com wasn't written by Ebert. It was, you know, one of those staff writers that are on the website now. The tale draws inspiration from a book called Satanism and Witchcraft, a history of witchcraft published in French by Jules Michelet in 1862. That explains one of the film's stranger conceits, which is that Jean's story is actually the tale of Jeanne d'Arc, the young oh, woman who led oh. the French army and was burned at the stake, but later beatified and canonized. Like, points so, to you. There we go. What do I, what's my prize? Do I get to choose something from the prize board? I'm going to have like a closet of mystery. I'll let you pick from it like every time. <laughs> uh, I'll take Joan de Arc for 11 points, please, Alex. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> RIP. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut in on your guys' point. It just, I, was, I, I wanted to see if anyone else made that connection. So I feel vindicated that they did. Oh, it looks like there's not a commentary. That's probably why I didn't watch it as well. So never mind. Can't um, watch something that didn't exist. So that's completely understandable. Yeah, <laughs> we got our question answered. So. Cool. Um, so obviously, look, the plot is what it is. Um, the animation, yeah, like the the animation is super interesting to me. Like some of the some of the, I struggle to call them scenes because scenes to me, you know, implies a movement. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe a still or a, a mm-hmm. frame is probably a better phraseology to use here. But some of some of the frames in this were just—they were just incredible. I, I I really liked the ones that were almost like watercolor. They were the ones that used mm-hmm. like they brought in the clouds and the and, you know the sort of rugged sort of landscapes. Those kind yeah. of almost watercolor esque ones. I thought they were stunning. Um, but yeah, kudos to like the artists who did. I don't I don't know too much about the um the actual you know animators of this like was it was it the director himself was the one drawing and animating this or did he have a team um but yeah like kudos to the guys who 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 put this together because um incredible artists yeah yeah and i and i the thing i noticed is i actually think it got better as the movie went on like i think it was allowed him to play like a lot more with the abstract ever went on. And I guess that is partially what kept me invested till the end is because it's like, oh, well, it keeps getting more interesting animation wise. Um, But I also noticed the the still movement at the beginning. I don't know a whole lot about like Japanese animation or anything like that. Is that like a standard thing to kind of have a lot more still images and then have it like expand out? Or is that 
or is any, it just unique to this? Yeah, and any like I've seen my fair share of studio uh, Ghibli films, like the Hayao Miyazaki, like Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, those kind of films. I've seen my fair share of those, and yeah, none of them were anything like this. Yeah, that's um, another reference yeah. point as well. I haven't really gotten into anime at all. There's this one called Trigun that my roommate watched a lot, and I kind of got into, but it wasn't anything close to this. But yeah, I don't, I don't, unfortunately. It's, yeah, this is no Pokemon. Um, I watched Zoids when I was a kid. That's about the closest <laughs> reference I have. Pokemon, Digimon, um, yeah, Yu-Gi-Oh! I suppose also kind of counts. But um, yeah, yeah, nothing, nothing that I've seen from Japan is anyway similar to this. But at the same time, I've never seen animation from Japan from this kind of time period. I'd say the oldest anime I've seen is probably Akira, and that was the eighties. And like Akira is a completely different kettle of fish to this film. Um, but similar in terms of the way the plot just goes completely off the rails halfway through. Um, but visually, visually nothing like this. Um, Which I'm, I'm curious, um, since we this is our second animated film, right? We did this in Fantastic Planet. Yeah. Um, which one do you guys prefer? Uh <sighs> <laughs> I didn't really like Fantastic Planet. Yeah, I didn't like it. I, I honestly, yeah, I don't know. I, I think if, if I don't want to say which one I prefer, but if you if you put a gun to my head and said, okay, Adam, you have to watch one of these next, I'd be putting on Fantastic Planet just because it's just kind of easier. <laughs> just because it's easier. It's not, I wouldn't say it's better, but it's easier. That's probably the only thing I would sort of say between the two films. Which you also have that interest in history, and I think that was a big part of Fantastic Planet we talked about, is like all the historical aspect of that movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit easier to connect to for me. Yeah, you know, Fantastic Planet was weird. I don't want to make this a Fantastic Planet thread, but I had, a same, I had the same kind of issue connecting. And I don't, know if it's, and I don't think it's animation. Like, I, I don't mind animation. Um, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of animation um, growing up and even still now. But, you know, the, the two ones we've watched for this film club, I just didn't connect with them at all. There's Revengeance, too, I just thought. Oh, oh my God, Revengeance. I can't believe I forgot about fucking Revengeance. Oh, Jesus. Fuck that film. <laughs> I have officially repressed it, and it's came back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Revengeance. That's, yeah. Well, we just won't talk about Revengeance. But, um, yeah. It wasn't even two, on the table for consideration. No, never. Never will be. The film should be just thrown to the sea. Um. I would probably, if if we're forced to pick, I'd probably try to make an argument that something like Spirit of the Beehive or Panic should be like it. It, it kind of plays the same way as an animated film would play, right. and that would be my choice. I would try to make that argument probably. <laughs> you were a... technically correct. The gr- best type of correct. <laughs> yeah, like I just remember Panic, like the way they did the sets. It felt like it could have easily. Yeah, been I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, like a Triplets of Belleville kind of style. Yeah, totally, yeah. Anyways, that's also a fantastic movie. Um, well, we just, now we can just talk about better movies than this. That'll be the rest <laughs> of the part of the episode. This is going to be a three-hour podcast where we name every <laughs> film better than Belladonna Sadness. <clears throat> I I feel like this is not a movie that everybody has to see. Yeah. Like, no, I don't, I, I don't regret watching it. And I, like no. I said, I, like there's certain images that I'm glad I saw, like not mm. the rape one, but some <laughs> other ones that were pretty great. 
It's it's the hard part about speaking to some of the creative talent involved. Like he, hearing the way that Craig and Dennis talked about the restoration, I have a soft spot for this movie because there was so much that went into the preservation of this. So like it's difficult. It, it's weird how that happens, but like just knowing kind of the backstory and like knowing like the labor of love to make this come into existence and how like through their work now it's showing up on people's list of like best films and some of that kind of stuff. It's very, so like, it's, I feel like a little bit too close to it almost to like, not like it, if that makes sense. But it, I don't think it's a film I'm going to watch again. And you know, it's, it's just hard to watch. So beautiful, but hard to watch. So unlike Revengeance, I'm glad it exists, but it's <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's not for me. Yeah, that's what's going to be in that closet of mysteries, just copies of Revengeance that I'm going to send you. <laughs> I'd be very surprised if, that, if they managed to get money for physical copies of that film. <laughs> that's a good point. There's another Kickstarter there if they, yeah, for them to get that, <laughs> to get that out. <laughs> They're going to get the Criterion C for it. Oh, God. <laughs> I'll officially denounce Criterion and everything they've ever put out. It would. The only way I could ever see that happening is if it's like a like a lifetime work for that director and sort of like um, everything he did in the in the early two thousands, late nineties that put him on the map. Um, otherwise, yeah, that'd be tough. Yeah, I'm you know, so Strike I'm Factory does a lot with animation. I'm not sure they would touch it. Shot, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, um, just to clarify, if you're only tuning in now, uh, fuck Revengeance. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so that kind of brings our, our segment to an end quite nicely, I think. All right, welcome back. Uh, so excited to be able to, to do an intro for this interview here with the Jesse Nelson, um, the guy behind the guy. If you don't know him by name, you certainly know him by money you've given him over the years. Um, he's grown Diabolic DVD into sort of the main source for boutique Blu-ray, especially for genre films. Uh, very, very in touch with the consumer. He's at most conferences. He's constantly, he's just a very busy guy. Uh, in addition to being a family man and for fun, he decided to create his own label. So we get to talk to him today about a film festival that he's a part of, uh, that he helped create maybe 25 years ago, almost now diabolic DVD, kind of the, the, the beginnings of that, how it grew out of the festival and, um, the, uh, the now cauldron films, which has put out some early releases. Very excited for this conversation and very grateful that he gave us some time. Cheers. I just ordered uh, or pre-ordered, I guess I should say, Shaw Brothers. Oh, that um, thing. You know, it, it looks so amazing. Although I'm a little confused um, why Mighty Peking Man is in that box set where everything else is just a bunch of heavy hitting kung fu films. I, I was curious, uh, you know, I, if, if I could get 88 films and Arrow in the same room together and just talk to him about the Shaw Brothers uh, strategy, because at some point it would it'd be nice to have um you know a couple of just like like a full volume i know i mean i don't know how many hundred movies there are but um over time it'd be nice to to kind of get all those out and those are some of my favorite movies they're so fun to watch they're so good and there's so many oddball deep cuts too you know you look at the horror movies and you think of you know boxers omen and human skin lanterns or you know oily <laughs> maniac but then there's just such weird ones that that are really deep in their catalog and then they have really strange movies like um heaven and hell that it has the crippled avengers in it and then it's got <laughs> um oh no i'm sorry it's got the five deadly venoms in it yeah and oh, then good. there's a musical number in it and you wonder what is going on in this thing 
and it's got these great sets. I think I think you know at one point I knew this number, but there, I think there's 700 Shaw Brother productions. 700. I think that's, that's right. I, yeah. I just did a quick count, and there was in just in the 50s, there was something like 80. And that was, you know, they were just kind of ramping up. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. Was, that wasn't even. Um, the, the 70s was kind of the heyday there. Yeah. So who, who knows, but once they really, anyways, but that's, I, I'm sure that um, after Gamera and after some of these sets that have come out, you, you're, you're used to handling kind of large sets, but it seems like that's certainly another one. Oh, it's, it's so much though. <laughs> you know, these, <laughs> these things show up, when Gamera showed up, it showed up on like um, four giant pallets here. Yeah. And you know when when Godzilla showed up from Criterion, they um they packaged those in their own boxes. Oh, each one? Yeah. So they oh. were they were all in their own shipping box. So the only thing I needed to do was slap a label on them. Mm -hmm. But the camera was not. So I had to take them out, I had to inspect them, I had to put bubble wrap on them, put them in another box. It was a lot of work. And, and your team is what, like four or five people probably doing all this? Oh no, it's me and my family. So okay. it, it's pretty small, but you know, when, when something like that happens, I, I bring in friends. So I'm, I'm fortunate to have a bunch of friends that live in the area that are always willing to come over and pack boxes. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of leads. So, so I, I, I put a, a, a ping out to Reddit say, Hey, there's this conversation I'm going to have coming up with the Jesse Nelson uh it, it, what, what questions do you have and one of the first questions that kind of leads well into it they just said how do I be like you when I grow up they said <laughs> so uh, they said you you are a uh you know family man you are a uh owner of a um uh, uh you know the, the I guess e-teller like retailer online yeah, retailer. Yeah. you have your own label you have your own kind of live show you're active in con conventions. Like, how do you, how are you, you? Like, are there, <laughs> how do you do it all? I mean, I wish there was another five hours in the day, honestly. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's been a long, weird journey. I, I'm, I'm almost, uh, I'll be 51 this year. So, okay. you know, I started working in a video store when I was 18. Mm -hmm. Lifelong movie fan. You know, Diabolic kind of grew out of, um, I would scour flea markets and video stores for VHS when no one wanted them. And we would bring those things and set up at an Exhumed film show and sell VHS there. And eventually we were like, yeah, how do we do, how do we do this all the time? And Diabolic really started out as um, mostly Hong Kong movies. That was kind of our first thing. We didn't really have, you know, there, there was Anchor Bay, but there wasn't, there wasn't the boutique, boutique labels like there is now. So, you know, we weren't interested in carrying, you know, wh whatever the latest movie was in mm -hmm. the early 90s. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know... Um, there we found that there was some real oddball things in Hong Kong and plus you know I, I distinctly remember one of the first things was Crouching Hit, Tiger Hidden Dragon was on DVD in Hong Kong 
right before it came in faders here. <laughs> so we had the disc uh -huh. and it wasn't even in faders yet. It's awesome. Yeah. So that's kind of where, you know, Diabolic went from, all right, now we have these things, but we're, we're really into the horror movies. What else is there out there? And we started looking around and there were some other weird labels. I, I, there was Dragon in Germany and there was Donut um, who, I can't even remember where they were. We used to order from them all the time. And then, you know, as that kept going on and on and on, eventually, you know, we started getting the boutique labels here, yeah. which has just been terrific for, for well, business and for collectors. You, I read a quote that you said that you cry thinking about how many uh, big box or big, big like VHS sets <laughs> of zombie that you sold and never kept one. I never kept one. Yeah, I have a Gates of Hell, but I never kept a zombie. And, you know, there was a time when you would find that, you'd throw a rock at a flea market and there'd be three of them sitting on a table. <laughs> we used, I used to go to this guy, the, the, the flea market that we went to all the time was um, not far from here in, in Berlin, New Jersey. And they had like an indoor section that was open all year, all year long. And then they had the outdoor section mm -hmm. and indoor, there was a video store guy. And the guy just would have like, he had this huge wall of $2 movies. Everything was $2. And I would walk out of there with a hundred tapes. <laughs> That's the beginning of diabolic yeah. slash your own hobby. <laughs> yeah, truly. But I really don't think I kept many of those VHS. You know, a lot of that money went to, inventory for for diabolic that's great well so speaking of that so i got into collecting for the first time i was in college in 2000 to 2005 and i got i worked at a blockbuster video and it the the one that i worked at just so happened to be i was the only person who was not a film major yeah <laughs> so there was like you know it was like me and like a bunch of people that were like deep into film and one guy that even like made costumes for horror movies like it was kind of like a side deal he made like makeup and effects for for super low budget you know like regional kind of horror movies um, and we actually carried trauma movies in the store, which was kind of fun for a blockbuster. I don't know how many did that, but it was a franchise store. And oh, okay, of, yeah, because I was going to say some of those they probably wouldn't want to carry at blockbuster. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, so I, I started getting into horror that way, and it was right around that time when Anchor Bay, Blue Underground, you yeah. know, Phantoma. There was kind of this like even Image was putting out a few kind of, but there's like. You know, it seemed like there was this wave, and I was joking earlier on. We were talking with, uh, with 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 Justin over Vinegar Syndrome, and he said that it was funny back then. You know, Anchor Bay would put out a limited edition of of like an Evil Dead movie, and it would be ninety five thousand copies, right? Yeah. And, and, but you still felt the urgency of like, I got to get it, like it's going to sell out. <laughs> and now, you know, like most of these labels that are putting out limited editions, it's like three thousand, you know, yeah. five thousand. Yeah. Um, so the industry has changed a lot, but I feel like in this in these twenty years since I've been kind of collecting. Um, I've never seen this kind of passion before from like the collection community. I'm wondering if, if, if you can speak at all to this journey of like the past 20 years, like it just feels to me like I took it for granted back in 2003, four, five. And then there was a little bit of a drop off, kind of a dead period. Uh, and then it feels like it's just taken like a huge upswing again, uh, in, in popularity or at least in passion. Yeah, it, it really does, um, seem like that the, you know, when we started um, 
when, you know, going back a little further, even when we started Exhumed Films, it was totally a grassroots thing. We, we found a theater that was willing to let us rent out the theater on a Friday night. Uh, you know, we talked to um, Bob Morowski that runs Grindhouse Releasing yeah. uh, that has his own great label. Yeah. And at the time, you know, he was he had these 35 millimeter prints and we're like, I can't believe these things still exist. Let's, <laughs> let's rent them. We rented them and we would go on to, you know, there wasn't Reddit and there wasn't Facebook. And yeah. I don't even think there was MySpace at that time. So it was like message boards, like, you know, well, horror movies dot alt. <laughs> and we would go on there and say, Hey, we're showing these movies. Does anyone want to come see them? And people showed up. They drove from all over to come see these movies. Awesome. You know, we we started out about the same time as um, as Tim started at the Draft House uh-huh. in Austin. So you know, we've had a long relationship with them as well, trading movie prints and and kind of programming things that you know, where'd you guys get this and where'd you get this? You know, before they ag for times uh-huh. as well. Um. So. You know, as the internet grew and people were able to not only connect more with each other and, you know, these things are available, but also able to connect more with the license holders. Yeah. You know, I don't know how people did that pre-internet. I don't know how you got a hold of somebody in Italy and said, hey, we want to release Cannibal Holocaust on Blu-ray. You know, what do the rights look like here? Let alone to even find them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, today it's, uh, here's a list of things we have available and here's the things that are taken and here's when they're available again, if you're interested. You know, we have, we have these things in a lab. You know, it, and, and not to mention the tools that are available these days to, um, you know, restore these things. It was things that, you know, traditionally 20 years ago, you didn't have these computers that could do what they do today. Yeah. 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 Fix these movies up. (laughs) So, yeah. You know, all, all of that has all kind of come together into this perfect storm of look at all these movies. And it's, it is really such a fantastic time to be not only a collector, but, a film lover. It certainly feels like that. We've been fortunate enough to speak to uh, about seven or eight different labels now already for, for young, for this young podcast. And every story is kind of the same of everybody has that, that, that one that's never had even a a DVD release and they've gone deep into the archives and found, you know, that, that movie that was last seen on some VH, some obscure VHS or or in the case of, uh, um, uh, what was it? Beyond Terror that's never had an English release, right? Right, right. Uh, and so I love it. I, it. It's so, I don't know, there's a lot of excitement around it, I think, as well. You know, we found when we were doing um, Beyond Terror, someone someone emailed us a um, snippet from um, the Gore Gazette, which was like a, a early fanzine in the New York area where the guy mm-hmm. would go and just see everything that was playing uh-huh. and write about it and very unpolitically correct reviews of movies and you know kind of like 
you know, people kind of forget the early days of Joe Bob Briggs when he worked for the Dallas Morning News and got fired. And because he <laughs> yeah. was, and, and, you know, he was kind of even a tamer version of the Gore Gazette. But okay. anyway, so we, the guy, the guy sent us a, a snippet from, from the fanzine that showed that Beyond Terror had been playing in New York, but it was only playing in Spanish language theaters. So they had never translated it. They just brought in this Spanish print of the movie wow. and they, they toured it around the U S to you know, Miami and Los Angeles and other places that would play it. Wow. We, we never knew that. So funny. Yeah. It's, such a, it's such a great movie too. So maybe, maybe that's a good segue quickly into Cauldron. So uh, I, I, I'm complete on Cauldron. <laughs> Not that it's hard to, to be yet. Yeah, uh, it's just a couple these days. <laughs> um, but I was really excited when I first heard out about it. I actually, um, I think it's on Boutique Blu-ray subreddit that somebody mentioned, and I didn't even know the connection to you for a while, but but I got the pre-orders. I have the slips. I'm one of those guys that likes to collect the slip covers. So thank you yeah. for making um, <laughs> I, I, so I've seen I've seen all the first four that are that are out, and I've got the other two pre-ordered. You have coming in, um, and I, I'm curious. There was an interview back in 2000 and either 11 or 13 with Bloody Gore Hound or Bloody Gore Horror or one of these magazines where you said that you weren't interested in putting out a label. So I'm curious. Uh, over the years, uh, what was it? Just there were certain films that weren't getting the the love that you wanted, and you felt like you could do it better. Oh, I don't know that I would ever say I think I can do it better. I just think it was, you know, it kind of got to a point where um, all these great things were coming out and I was a little jealous. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, I would I, I would love to see, you know, the, the first thing that we went after was American Rickshaw. And, you know, it was available and you know, we, we raised some money for it um, and spent a long time thinking about how we wanted to package them mm -hmm. and, you know, what we wanted to look like. We, our, our intention was always to have um, kind of a uniform label on your shelf. Like these things are going to look like this from yeah. day one. Yeah. And uh, although that we, we keep kind of, evolving you know things that that we're doing like the um the two new cauldron movies you know we program them so that when you watch them and you turn off your player it comes back on and says hey do you want to start the movie from where oh uh -huh. where you stopped it uh -huh. we didn't have that on the first four releases so you know we heard some complaints about it and looked into it a little bit in the software that we use and figured it out. I have a, my, my partner is uh, Brian Izzy, who, you know, we kind of met through um, just kind of talking. He was a customer and he had played in some bands that I knew. So I was a fan of, of the bands and we just became friends that way. And then, you know, the kind of label kind of involved from that as well. We were, we were working at a convention together and he's like, we should do this. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Where do we start? American uh, I mean, Rickshaw. <laughs> yeah. Like a Sergio Martino film with, with an Olympian uh, gold medalist in the starring role. Like that's a no brainer, right? <laughs> yeah. I talked to um, Mitch Gaylord. He is a real estate agent in Austin now. Oh, no way. And his wife um, owns some gyms. I guess they own some gyms together. Okay. 
And I reached out to him and he very, it was very nice exchange where he said that he never wanted to talk about that movie again. <laughs> well, if he's in Austin, I might be pretending to buy a house from him and see if I can get an inside scoop. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, I, honestly, we love the movie. You know, it's Daniel Green and Donald Pleasance. Oh, yeah. And Sergio Martino. And, you know, all those Italian movies shot in Florida in the, in the late 80s and early 90s they absolutely feel like someone said, hey, you know you can go to America and take a vacation in Florida and shoot a movie while you're there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's good in the movie. He's maybe a little raw, but, you know, they don't give him many action moments that he probably could have excelled in. And I, I don't know why he's too embarrassed about it. it he's, it's fine, you know? The, uh, the, the cast of Trolls, too, has made a career out of doing uh, these speaking engagements nowadays, right? And that's much uh, worse. Yeah, a lot of people have, you know, made careers out of these. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's what, you, that's what you're standing on? Okay, sure. <laughs> it's funny. Um, well, that's cool. Well, I'm excited for Collagen. Um, I feel like, um, so I, you know, obviously I was excited to watch Abracadabra because of the, I just love Jalo films. And, like, I love the fact that it was, like, this kind of love letter to, to Jalo. Um uh, or Jolly, do you actually, is there an official statement on, is it like one plural? It, uh, anyways. Um, it depends on how much I've had to drink. <laughs> before you wax philosophical on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Beyond Terror, I think, is way more fun than I expected it to be. It's so, I, I really liked it. I think, to be honest, I think Beyond Terror might be my favorite one so far. Uh, just from a, just from the perspective of, it, it's just like a genre mashup or something, like, yeah, it's, it, it's wonderful. It kind of starts out as like a crime movie and then goes into this weird horror movie. And then, you know, along the way, you have all this blasphemy and incest. And yeah, yeah right. I don't even know. And the, the sex scene in that movie is something else. And it feels like the, the if you're like a lot, you know, kind of like a long time horror fan and you haven't seen it, it feels like one of those things that like you should see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's one of those movies that you just should experience. I, I think that if it had been, you know, one of those more well-known horror movies that people grew up renting at the video store in a big box, it, it'd, be, it'd be much more spoken about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like an Evil Dead or something where people are just like, I can't believe there's a tree that like rapes her or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. People forget that about Evil Dead. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so I, uh, so... Can't, can't wait to see what's coming out. I know you've been tight-lipped about future releases. And I even heard an interview you did with, a, um, I think it was even a local magazine or something earlier in the year where you kind of explained why you're just, you, you said that, you know, you're a little bit like shy to kind of put titles out there because then people want to know what date it's coming out. And some of these oh, kind of, yeah. So I, yeah. I, I, I totally get that because I've been on the other end of that as well. <laughs> so um, so I guess you have what the, the, the initial impression on Reddit when the two new releases came out was like, this feels strange like compared to the first four titles you put out. So it, just for, just to kind of set the record straight, like what is Cauldron Films? Like, what do you, what do you want to do with it? Like, you know, or maybe this is still getting defined. Um, I think that, you know, Cauldron Films to us is first and foremost, we, we want to put out things that, that we want to work on and that we're passionate about. Yeah. You know, every, everything that we've pursued are things that 
you know, were on a list of things that we were looking at. Um, you know, the, I, I saw all the complaints about the found footage movie, so I'm, I'm well aware of them. And, you know, I, I do, I see all these complaints all the time, like, you know, people complaining about Severn putting out Overboard. I don't know why that's a complaint. Totally agree. You know, you don't want it, then, then don't buy it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Overboard is Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, and it's actually kind of a strange comedy. Um, but it's a good movie. It's fun. I mean, I grew up watching that movie in the video days. So I, if I was Severin, or if I had the chance to put that out, I would be like, yeah, maybe it's not the most passionate thing in the world, but A, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to put this out. It's going to appeal to people that maybe have not bought from me or heard from me before. You know, I think vinegar syndrome really moved into another level when they did rad. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people found them that had never heard of vinegar syndrome before. For sure. You know, they, they were doing great work up until then. And then rad just was like, whoa. Six string samurai. Now there's yeah. a bunch of stuff. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is terrific too. Um, so I went off on a tangent there and kind of forgot. Oh, so Cauldron is is really going to be things that we're passionate about. But, you know, it, it's also a competitive business. So, you know, we've looked at several things that we were outbid on or several things that, you know, there was already somebody else that was about to put the ink on the contract. So sometimes we had to take a second choice when we were dealing with a licensor, but you know, that's okay. You know, the things that I think that everything that we've picked, um, I'm passionate about and I'll stand behind. And those two found footage movies, first of all, I love found footage movies. So I, I have a story way back in the day, you know, Exhumed Films was gonna do Blair Witch Project. Okay. We had spoken to the filmmakers. They sent us some early VHS cut of it. Okay. And we were all ready to do it. We were going to have this big screening in Philadelphia for it. And they called us one day and said, we just sold the movie, so we can't do it. Uh, so it was, it was right then. Uh, but, you know, and people seem to forget that Cannibal Holocaust is a found footage movie. They find that reel of film and that's the whole movie is them playing that back. Sure, sure, sure. So, you know, and both of those films are extremely effective. And the Collingswood story, Collingswood, New Jersey is the next town from where I grew up. And when that movie came out, it, it wasn't released in the U.S. for some reason, but Anchor Bay put it out in the U.K. on DVD. Yeah. And I had kind of forgotten about it. And I had been watching a lot of found footage movies with my daughter. We had watched, uh, we watched all the paranormal activity movies, every mm -hmm. one of them. And then we watched a lot of junky movies that are just streaming on Amazon. Uh -huh. And then, you know, some of them are really good. Hell House is great. Um, you know, they, the houses that October built is, is pretty darn good, not, not terrific. So yeah. I was like, shit, I forgot about this Collingswood story. Let's watch this. And we watched uh -huh. it. You know, it's, you know I, I forgot. It was right after Host came out okay. on Netflix. And I was like, you know, there is a movie that kind of does the same thing from the early 2000s that I completely forgot about. And I dug it out. I still had a copy of it. 
and I watched it and I said, man, this is really good. I'm going to talk to the filmmaker. I, and I emailed him right, right then. I found his contact on the internet. That's awesome. Totally into it. So we started working on it right away. I love that. Well, yeah, you, you... And, and then the 1974, which is the, you know, kind of companion piece, we wanted something to release with it. And I had seen that floating around. Um, it had played some festivals, but never really got a release. I couldn't find it even, even streaming anywhere. And again, I found the, the director on the internet. He sent me over a copy and I was like, whoa, this is great. <laughs> so we're like, well, there we go. We got our two, two companion it. found footage releases. Well, you've got, you had my day one pre-order. Uh, yeah, you've, thank you. You were in my trust, Jesse. If, if you like it, I'm going to give it a shot. And I, yeah, I, I stand behind them. People were really shitty about it, but you know, I think that's going to be that way. I didn't make the movies. So it's not, it's not really personal for me. And I think that when people see them and reviews start coming out, I think people will, will realize that these are not a bumper crop of, of cauldron releases. Well, horror is uh, is a pretty wide spanning genre, right? Horror is not oh, confined. It's all over. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm excited to see it. And I, I like found footage movies as well for, for what it's worth. So uh, excited to see those. Um, that there, there was, you mentioned, uh, uh, the, the chance that, that uh, the, what are the odds that Severin is going to release Going Overboard and how exciting it would be to be able to do that. That, that kind of is an interesting thing because now they've released Drop Dead Fred as well. And, yeah, I, which, and which it you, got me, which I grew up with. Maybe more online, but sure. Yeah, yeah, in terms of just, they're like kids line. They have like the peanut butter solution. And so yeah. Like really want to be like kids. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think I, I've just kind of noticed this. Like if, if you take a step back and forget about the content of the movies, if you look at what, you know, Blue Underground, Severin, um, Vinegar Syndrome, like Arrow, if you look at what these labels are doing, right, they have created these massive distribution engines, production houses, restoration houses, or, and maybe they use contractors, you know, maybe, maybe it's more of like a network of, of people they've kind of assembled together. But it feels prime to sort of start taking over right as the major studios are saying they're not going to put out as much physical media. Right. Like there's this whole kind of movement of companies that are ready if 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 they're just not going to release another version of Godfather. Like, why wouldn't some company like this kind of like put it out? Because they have the complete engine in place to put out. Like, have you seen some of these 4Ks from Blue Underground? They look amazing. Oh, they're, they're terrific. Yeah. Right. I don't know why a studio. First of all, I don't know why the Godfather isn't on UHD already. It just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Um. Tammy and the T-Rex is on UHD, by the way. <laughs> Next world. <laughs> yeah, no Godfather. Right, right. Um, but, but not even, you know, not even those big movies. You know, forget for a second studio movies like, you know, E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, you know, I don't think the studios will ever give those things up. But there's so many other things in those vaults. If you don't care, then, you know, I had conversations with Lionsgate, you know, I, with my retail guy at Lionsgate. I was like, you guys are just sitting on all these movies. You know, give me some of them. Uh -huh. eh, we don't really have any interest in it. But why? Why? What do you, why are you sitting on them? Yeah, do something. Be, yeah. The Lionsgate especially. They could be doing a lot more with the Vestron line. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know that it's my story to tell, but I know that the woman that was... You know, when, when the Vestron 
label was putting out more releases for a while there. Mm -hmm. That woman was laid off. That was, that was behind that. So, um, you know, they kind of, it kind of got stalled out for a while there. And even now it's, it's still pretty stalled, but you know, at least there's been some movement. Yeah. The, the, this is with all due respect to everybody involved. The, the commentary from blood diner was (laughs) one of the most pretentious things I, I, I had (laughs) hard to listen to like a director talk about how important she was for an hour and a half. Um, but I did like the movie. <laughs> oh, Blood Diner is great. I love I love Jackie's movies. They're super. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, no. I, and I, anyways, it, it was it was uh, it, it was this weird experience of loving the movie, being excited to listen to the commentary, and just being like, oh, I wouldn't ever want to hang out with you. <laughs> <laughs> but but keep making good movies, please. Um, okay. So the, the the other big question that came up with with regards to Diabolic, if if you don't mind, kind of switching gears for a second. Yeah, sure, and, sure. There's this interesting tension right now where it feels like the, you know, UHD, this all goes away, by the way, but this whole region con- conversation, right? Oh, that's so weird. It's, yeah. And you have like this interesting things where like, uh, I, f- I forget the release now, but Synapse has the North American rights and Arrow has the region B rights to this one release. Yeah. And there, there's like, and, and obviously they're both fantastic companies, right? And like for, for an e-tailer like you, do you know do you, is there I don't know how much you're able to discuss but is there ever like awkward conversations behind the scenes of like yo like I'm kind of agnostic here like I'm just selling stuff like I'm yeah alive. yeah you know it's so weird because you know back back in like you know late 80s and early 90s when you would collect music you know, you go out and buy a record, you buy an import of something that wasn't available here or had a different cover, but they were all released by the same, you know, major studio. So no one really cared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when, when Arrow announced Demons. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah. It was, yeah. Synapse was like, we're doing this too. I was like, well, if you're doing it too, I'm not going to carry it because, you know, we have a good relationship. I have a relationship with both of you. So you guys are putting me in the middle, but if you, if you don't want me to carry it, that's fine. So I had to answer probably about 10,000 emails as to why I wasn't carrying it. But I would just always say, you know, it's owned by someone else in the U.S. and they prefer I don't carry it. You know, I, it wasn't for me to say, they're going to do it if you just hold on a second. I don't know why they didn't want me to say that, but, you know, they were working on it. I knew they were working on it. So here we are, and now we have two versions. And I, I know Synapse and Arrow work together on these things too. So, you know, I, I am super happy when these people work together on things. You know, it's great. I know that, you know, um, for example, when Severin announced Blood for Dracula, mm-hmm. I knew Vinegar Syndrome was doing Flesh for Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I knew they went in on that together. Uh-huh. So it was real weird that they weren't announced at the same time, but then eventually vinegar syndrome just had to come out and say, yeah, 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 we're doing this. Yeah, yeah, right, um, right. But I knew that all along that the two of them were doing those, those two films. Um, these, you know, sometimes people share things with me, but I'm pretty good at keeping a secret. That's good. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to remember to come up and get you drunk sometime then. I don't want to tell secrets because I want people to keep telling me the secrets. That's true. That's true. You know, the first time you spell them, that's the last time. 
<laughs> there's a there's a there's a tiny uh, well I, I shouldn't say that there, there's a new label let me just say that that's coming out called error 4444 yeah and, and they were talking about some of the cat three films that they're going in on and and they were telling a similar story where there's kind of companies from around the world are getting together for some of these cat three releases yeah yeah we we personally looked into um the one title they're doing um red it, spells, spells red oh okay and uh, we, we had someone helping us in Hong Kong and they said there was nothing available to use as a master and that they couldn't really find out who had the rights. So we just kind of gave up on it. So I'm, I'm stoked that someone figured it all out. You know, that, that's terrific. It's, if you've never seen the movie, it's bonkers. A guy bites the head off a live chicken in the movie. Jeez. So people are going to be real unhappy about that, but it happened. It's that's a real chicken. There's okay. no joke. Ozzy Osbourne style. Oh, he just he goes for it. I, I always wondered if the if the octopus and old boy was real. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somewhere that story is uh, is out there. You know, I was just looking for some reason. I was I fell into a um, rabbit hole and was reading about faces of death. And I read a story that the director claims that the, the scene where they eat the monkey's brains was just filmed in Los Angeles and it was a bunch of his friends sitting around and it was a prosthetic. I had never heard that story before, but. Interesting. Yeah. That reminds me of all those, um, what were they called? The Mondo, um, the Blue Underground put out a box set. Yeah, in the Mondo box set, the Mondo Kane box set. Mondo, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Some of those films get, get pretty graphic. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're nuts. <laughs> but, you know, you never know what is, what's just staged and, um, and what's real. But the, you know, the animal violence stuff, it always gets everybody. Everybody hates that. We were laughing a little bit on the, on this, on the podcast when uh, the Cannibal Holocaust, the new version, came out with the animal uh, cruelty-free the version. The cruelty-free version, yeah. <laughs> it's just a funny idea. Oh, um, it's ridiculous. That poor tor <laughs> tortoise. I know, I know, I know. It's awful. I know, I know. Yeah, for sure. Um, great. So, um, so, so the, the lesson of anybody who's listening, if they want to become Jesse Nelson, the the lesson here <laughs> is find four friends and go go rent a theater and start showing movies uh, in in South New Jersey, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of how it all started. Everything started from that. That's crazy. Do you remember back in the early 2000s, uh, there was a, a, I mean, I'm kind of joking calling him a competitor, but down in Austin, there was a competitor called the uh, Ain't It Cool News. And then they did this annual event called the Buttonumathon. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so did, did you, were you close to Harry at all? Or did you, did you know that team at all? I didn't know Harry, but um, my Exum partners went to several of those and, you know, they knew Tim very well. So they would go okay. and stay with Tim. And, and go to those events. And, and sorry for, for the ignorance on this. Are you still doing the 24 hour festivals today? No. Well, we, okay. we so we had a theater. Um, it was a real weird thing. The theater was a dorm. <laughs> and on the ground floor of this dorm was a full movie theater that had everything. It had, it had DCP, it had 16 millimeter, it had two 35 millimeter projectors. Wow. It was terrific. It wasn't the best theater in the world, but technically speaking, it was great. Okay. And they didn't care what we did in there. 
and the building was sold. So the people that were there pulled all their equipment out and found a new home and then COVID hit. Okay. So, you know, we were potentially going to continue doing screenings with them at their new home and then things just never panned out and then they couldn't pan out. So I don't know what's going to happen this year. We were talking to some other people uh, about maybe continuing on with the 24 hour fest. That feels My, like um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say that feels like something the Agfa guys would be all about. Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, uh, we've we've rented and traded movies with them for years. Um, so a lot of times you'd come to the 24 hour fest and you'd see an Agfa print. They always put those bumpers on at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you always know what you're getting. <laughs> but um, my partner, um, my partner Harry is building his own theater here in South Jersey. So he's got a kind of a boutique screening room. There's going to be a place for a store. And then he's got a retro arcade attached. Oh, that's awesome. And same thing. He was building this and then COVID hit. So he's just kind of been trying to get it done. He's been doing a lot of the work himself. Ugh. And yeah, well, so fortunately he's a, He's a pipe fitter by trade, so he's very handy and mechanical. Um, but because of it's kind of a smaller theater, we could never do a 24-hour fest there. It's just not cost-effective. Oh, okay, okay. We would have to charge so much for a ticket. But it's going to be like akin to a new Beverly. It's going to be a constant programming of all kinds of movies. New stuff, old stuff. His, his collection rivals Agfa's. It's crazy. Oh, wow. It's enormous. It, Agfa, Agfa was built out of Harry's collection. This is a true story. He was going to buy this collection of films and at the last minute passed on it and said to Tim, hey, Tim, there's this whole warehouse of movies here that I'm passing on but you could do your weird Wednesdays and terror Tuesdays for 50 years uh -huh. with these movies. Uh -huh. And Tim went and bought them all. Oh shit. And that's kind of where Agfa grew out of. So my, this is a, it's going to sound like a weird tie-in, but it's right. So my, one of my first, I, I'm in sales. That's my, my profession. I'm in tech sales and uh, not in the movie industry at all. Just, just a hobby. Yeah. And um, I, uh, my first sales job was in selling commercial lighting. So I would go, I'd put a little tie on and I'd go door to door to businesses in the summer of Austin heat, just like sweating, mm. miserable job. But anyways, Terrible. that, you know, the, the big, the, the big money accounts were like school districts and like large buildings where they would buy like a lot of lights, but I had a passion project to go make the Alamo a customer. So I like did everything I could to go make the Alamo <laughs> draft house a customer. And uh, finally there was, there's two, uh, there, there's two particular theaters in Austin that I got to buy light bulbs from me. Um, tiny orders, but I didn't care because I was excited to have them. As yeah, right. So I got a tour of one of the ones I got a tour, and I won't mention it just in case so people don't like flood in if they hear this by by chance. But but one of the ones in the projection room, they actually it was just sort of like they had this giant kind of room that that spanned across all the screens, and it was lined with bookcases, and it was all these tins of prints that were bookended, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like thousands of movies probably. And they're like, yeah, this is Tim's personal collection. 
Um, but I think they didn't say that at the time, but I think it might've been, it, it was around 2008, nine. I don't know exactly when Act was started, but I have to imagine it's tied to, to kind of the timing of that somehow. Cause it was so many. Yeah. It's, it probably is, you know, there, there is a very small network of very dedicated film collectors uh-huh. that, you know, that all kind of work together. Didn't, was it, didn't Dennis Bartok write a book about that? Oh, I don't know, but that would be great. I would love to read that. I think he did. Yeah, I think he wrote a book about like this, like the not not film collectors like me. They collect like discs, but like like the collectors that like go oh. out and print prints and stuff. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but um, anyways, yeah, he was. Anyways, yeah, that was we, we were we had a chance to speak with him early on, which was fun. He's an interesting historian guy. But um, so uh, okay, great. So yeah, uh, I think that's pretty much all the questions that I had. I'm just trying to remember. So. Is there a favorite label that when, when you sit down to relax after a long day of, of pumping up and, and getting people excited about <laughs> so many different things, what's your, what's the, the label or the, or the tenor genre maybe that you go to to relax? You know, I really, really and truly love uh, Manda Macabre. Okay. I, I think that if I'm going to my shelf, I look to see what I haven't watched from them yet uh-huh. or anything else. And that's not to say I love everything they put out because I don't, but I'm always really interested in what they curate there. You know, I think, I think Pete has a real eye for some oddities. And, you know, when I do a convention, I always bring copies of Alicarda. I always bring copies of Mystics and Bally, uh, Lady Terminator. Uh-huh. Those things are just so terrific. <laughs> Have you ever seen the knockoff? It's um, who put it out? I think Scream Factory might have even put it out called Alienator. I've I've never seen it, but we carry oh, it, so it's so bad. Oh, hey. <laughs> no, anyways, I, I got it. I mean, I own it, and, and I'm. Yeah, anyways, that was not what I was expecting. But uh, <laughs> it's not. It's no Lady Terminator. Lady Terminator is a great. It's Lady a fun Terminator movie. is terrific. Um, yeah, super fun. So, okay, so Mondo Macabre been around for kind of sneaky. They've been around for a while. For a while. And they were, you know, they did some UK only releases. And then they were, before they were Mondo Macabre, they were something else that I can't put my finger on. So they released some things going way back under a different name and then rolled into Mondo Macabre in, in the UK. And they did some UK only releases. Oh, wow. Great. Super interesting. Yeah, that's the label. That's, that's the only problem is it's just a matter of paychecks for me. I have, um, I have <laughs> in terms of different labels and like how many I have from different labels, I just crossed after, you know, again, 20 years of collecting, I just crossed 4,000 titles and it feels like way too many. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going well. to keep going, but um, I, I think I only have one or two Mondo Macabro, but that's probably something I need to expand a little bit more. Terrific. Um, it's such good. It's such a good label because even when I don't love the movie, I was I was interested in it. I was I was fascinated by what was going on in the movie. That's how I feel about Vinegar Syndrome um, uh, as well. I, I just I, the, even the detail they put into like calling chapters they call them reels. Yeah, I love that. It, yeah, like there's just it just feels like there's that I don't know. It, it just seems like I'm supporting cinema somehow when I buy it from them. Like hey, I love what those guys are doing. I, you know, I love all those labels. I'm friends with all those people. I you know from from the retail side i've had to deal with you know there was a time when those people didn't have great distribution either i would buy from vinegar syndrome direct 
So just drive down and go pick up some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, I've I've known and talked to these people for forever. Yeah, there was uh, we were talking with Lewis from um, Massacre Video the other yeah. day, and he said uh, he, I, I, he was kind of saying it's tongue in cheek. The whole industry has about fifteen people. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, he he shares an office with Severin in Los Angeles. They work in the same office building. Yeah, you know, it's wild. He mentioned that. Yeah, so it's funny. all, it's 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 pretty incestuous. I mean, that's how most industry, most you know, uh, kind of industries are. Though, when you start getting to the to the top, they're they're smaller than you think. But, um, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. You know, I is is there anything that uh, you want to talk about with regards to Cauldron? Or it sounds like, it, you know, yeah, anything else? I'm I'm pretty tight lipped on that, but I will say we have. Um, we're well on the way to announcing the next Cauldron release. Uh, it's going to be one instead of, we've been doing two. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been working on this one for about a year and we're finally just about finished it. Oh, good. It's going to be terrific. We're real excited. But uh, we're, go- we're going back to Europe for this one. So people will be really excited. Well, you have, the, the, you, you put on the website, like the hint, it's like something like, it'll say like Italian horror, you, you give like a little bit of a kind of thing, right? So anyways, I, uh, I won't, I won't press you anymore on it, but um, you know, the, um, the Beyond Terror and um, Crimes of the Black Cat, the retail versions just came out. So they're, you know, they, they're available everywhere. Now you can buy them on Amazon or wherever you want to spend your money, but preferably not Amazon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, there's a postcard in there that lists upcoming titles, I've heard no one mention it yet. So there's there's two <laughs> titles on there that we haven't spoken about that are just listed on there. That's hilarious. They're there think, for people to discover. I think most people that, uh, um, maybe it's a matter of everybody having the limited edition already. Yeah, of those you know, things. you're not wrong. And the, technically the retail date was just this past week. It was the sixth, although I know they've been out and about. So anytime now people are gonna see those. Well, I'm sure that I'll, I'll be the first one to see. I'm pretty active on the, the Boutique Blu-ray subreddit. Um, where, where should people find you if they want to ask, ask uh, nice questions? Um, Twitter's great. Twitter? Facebook's right. great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. we're pretty active on there. I, I do 100% of the social media. Okay. Uh, I do 100% of the customer service, too. So if someone wants to drop us an email to either Cauldron or, or Diabolic, you know, so I can answer your... questions for either. So how do you relax? Because I have to imagine that's there's some hard days there if you're doing all that. It's a long day. You know, I'm, I got up early today to work and I'm going to go out and, and work right now. Uh, how do I relax? It's, you know, I usually sit down around eight o'clock okay. and uh, take the dog for a walk. Wow. Well, thank you for all you do. Yeah. Um, you've right been here. a major part of so many of our lives without knowing you personally um real 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 joy and and honor to speak to you so thanks for giving us some time thanks so much i I, it was a pleasure being on i appreciate it all right and welcome back now we are going to be talking about the battles of algiers which is directed by gilo pontichorvo please for god's sake i said that right that'll do man i'll take that okay cool i'd be happy with that myself okay we'll we'll work with that In the 1950s, fear and violence escalate as the people of Algiers fight for independence from the French government. Um, Let me hear from you, Chris. What'd you think? Really, really loved this movie. I'm going to go ahead and and get that out of the way. Um, I 
it, uh, objectively here, it is ranked as the 75th best movie of all time. Wow. That's high. So I'm not alone in my love for this movie. It's always hard to tell, you know, when you start talking about something in the top 100, hard for me to know if that, you know, I think it's always naturally going to feel a little high for me. Just because, like, how do you say a movie is the top 100 of all time? Um, but I feel like this is the type of movie that would, if you're political minded or activist minded, this would be like something that's a must see. And if you're not, it's still a very, very compelling kind of exciting story, uh, very interesting story. And it's so well told. So I don't really have an issue personally with it being in the top 100. I was a little bit surprised to see it there. Um, uh, before I go too much deeper into my, uh, you know, personal kind of take, what, what do y'all think about hearing that it's 75th best of all time? Uh, I'm surprised, not because I didn't like the film. Um, Top is a really good film. Um, I'm a big neorealist guy. I love that style. Roberto mm-hmm. Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica. Obviously, this came a little bit afterwards, about well, but best part of 15, 20 years after that movement ended, but same sort of ideals were there especially that that newsreel aspect have you guys seen paisan by um by rossellini uh, very very similar sort of narrative tool where he uses newsreels to sort of go sort of between scenes he'll have newsreels in between this is very similar um yeah um a surprise to see it in top 100 but at the same time it's a it's a really great film um so I, i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna give out about it being there at the same time well, this uh, might end up being a boring discussion. I, I loved it as well. Um, <laughs> really great. Um, I also want to start with this little factoid. So years ago, when The Dark Knight Rises came out, Christopher Nolan did his 11 films that inspired that film for him to make it. And this was on there for some reason. I have not been able to make the connection, but it's there. I can, I, I can see that. I can really? see that. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's been years since I've seen Dark Knight Rises. So yeah, maybe same here, same here. But like, you know, that... The, the sort of scenes he shot in the street post is I I, I can't believe we're talking okay. about fucking okay. Dark Knight Rises, but um no <laughs> like after Bane sort of takes mm-hmm. over Gotham and every and the sort of the um you know all the sort of upper class or whatever have kind of gone underground and stuff, um a lot of it sort of shot on the street handheld, so I I I, I can see that. I can see, I can't see it literally him like copying shot composition right, or anything, yeah. but I can see the idea there that maybe he would want to okay. integrate something like that. Um, so into... Maybe it's not as funny as when I first read it. I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> um, just because but... <laughs> you like the film, Chris, doesn't mean you were inspired by it, you know? There's, there's a fine line there between liking something and, and actually being inspired by it. <laughs> But, yeah. you know, um, this, this part of history is completely blind to me. You know, it, growing up, uh, I, I'm not going to get overly political here, so don't worry. But I, I grew up Gulf War, um, stuff like that, you know. Um, so the amount of stuff we learned about the Middle East and their revolutions and stuff like that are incredibly minimal. Like, it, you were just not going to learn a lot about that. You're going to focus on uh, World War Two. Mm-hmm. which none of the Middle Eastern stuff for World War II, just the European and the Japanese. You're going to focus on, uh, you know, stuff like that. Vietnam, you might talk about for a little bit. But beyond that, I knew really nothing about this, and I was completely enthralled by it. I think it was just really fascinating how he captured this sort of chaos. And mm-hmm. I'm really interested 
um, just just in, just in this part of history, because you know that you you don't think about when you think of colonialism, you think of the 18th century. You know, especially when it started dying out. You know, the 1800s, Haiti had revol- you know revolted against France. France had their own revolution. Um, France is in a lot of revolutions. They're just really into it, I guess. Um, <laughs> thanks for the U.S. Appreciate it, France. Um, but it's it's one of those deals where it, it really puts in perspective how long a lot of that goes. Of course, there's Gandhi and stuff that dealt with that, but just really how long these people dealt with colonialization. And they said, I think 130 years in the movie that France had been there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't have a ton else to add, but I just thought that was all pretty fantastic. I, um, I did study this a little bit in school. Um, in, in history class now it's obviously been about best part of 10 years since I, I had a history class on this but um post post world war to europe was super interesting especially how the allied countries dealt with their colonies because after world war ii you know places like the uk and india like you mentioned with gandhi and then especially france with north africa there was huge um pressure on them to come out of these countries because they had they had fought against hitler for doing what they've been doing for hundreds of years you know why (laughs) this is going to sound like i'm pro hitler why but basically i'm going to say my sentence anyway and it is what it is but like why fight hitler for doing something that you've already been doing and are still actively doing you know it's it's very much it's very two-faced or what's the word i can't think of the word now hypocritical hypocritical that's the word thank you um so there's major pressure and it was a huge especially with france france and north africa was huge because for so long like you said it was over 100 years so many people had come from north africa to france and they'd very much sort of began integrating with society but there was there was a huge sort of drive for the algerians to want to be free from their oppressors and i find it so ironic because they're wanting this for the exact same reason the French wanted to be free of the kings and the royals. Exactly. But just the French just didn't see it that way. It's, you know, it's this very single-minded approach. And obviously, being Irish, you know, the English oppressed us for 800 years. I'm always going to side with the little guy who wants to get freedom from the oppressors. So I, I'm right on the side of the Algerians here throughout this film. Um, and, and just, you know, in general, sort of in, in the battle against colonialism... Um, so I, I found it really interesting to see if what's almost like a, almost like a first person account based on the fact that like a lot of the earlier neorealist films, a lot of this was shot on the streets of Algiers of people who were actually there and experienced mm-hmm. and were able to sort of say, this is what happened. This is how this went down. Um, so I really enjoyed the film from a historical context. It's, it's a great, a great look into a, you know a piece of sort of time that i suppose like you said zach a lot of you guys in america would never have even learned about any of this stuff in school um so it's a great window into a piece of time into an era but it's also just a really well-made film at the same time so it works both as a historical element but also you know from a purely cinematic point of view it really works on both sides which is super important when you make a film like this you know, I, yeah, because I think one thing I was uh, doing a little reading on, and the they actually chose the director to do this, which I thought was really fascinating. Because when I did a little research into uh, 
I'm not going to say it again. We're not. Uh, I did it once. We're good. But when I did a little research, uh, he, from my understanding, was very Marxist. Uh, he was very <laughs> politically Marxist. And to have him make this type of film is really interesting. But I think it works for that reason that he doesn't. I don't know if he necessarily has a stake in this as much. Like he paints it. I feel like more accurately to what it is. Like I. Not going to sit there and say, you know, it's all shades of gray. What the French were doing were bad and all that other stuff. But it's also this idea that it's you're breaking the status quo. And I don't think they tried to make the general. I think he was general major. I can't remember which one. I don't think they made him into like a miniature Hitler, which I could imagine a bad filmmaker doing like, you know, to him, it's just that's his job. That's you know, we can go. We can, of course, connect that to Nazism and stuff. But at the end of the day, that's what how he looks at it he's looking at it and he, you know he he's looking at it this is just how things are like not necessarily a need to change and i think it made it much more interesting to can have those scenes where it's just him sorry zach can we actually double click on that for a second because that's i wanted to like cover that uh and, and i think he's a i think a colonel uh, at least he's yeah I'm, he's listed as a colonel um but this is one of my favorite things about the movie. So just like while we're kind of talking about that, and sorry to interrupt, but I no, think, okay, cool. Okay, thanks. Um, it would be so easy to make this film from the perspective of the Algerians on the street, right? And sort of like not really give screen time to the French side, the French perspective. And if you were to give screen time to the French side, for it to be very biased and sort of paint them all in a very one-dimensional fashion. And I think that's one of the things I love so much about this movie is Colonel Matthew or Matteo is very smart, number one, extremely well-educated. He's kind of an empathetic guy. Like he fully understands how hard this is gonna be and the complexities of what they're entering into. He even asked the question openly one time, like, why are we here? Like, are, are we sure we still wanna be here? Like this really like, is, is colonialism really working for anybody? but he's there to do a job and he's ruthless, right? Like he's vicious, like he's, he's unforgiving. Like he, he approaches it almost like a psychopath, right? Like he has empathy for the enemy in this case, even though the enemy is supposed to be this French community. Uh, I mean, they are supposed to be part of mother France, right? So they're not really the enemy, but they're fighting. So to him, he's treating them like the enemy. It's almost um, like a civil war for them in a sense. Right? Yeah. Um, there was even like French sort of like, Set, uh, call, like um, a actual French citizens there sort of living in like French communities, right? Not, not Algerian communities. Um, and I think the fact that he, that not quite equal screen time, but for sure equal respect is giving to like the characters and the intelligence of every character involved makes this much more layered for me and really sort of like drew me in. Like I love the scenes where Colonel Matteo was speaking. Um, I, I he was very eloquent. Well, it's that. And I also think the sense of if we go back to the Algerian side, we see them like we understand what they're doing. And I don't disagree necessarily with what they're doing, but we're watching them kill hundreds of innocent people. You know, and we're seeing like, you know, I remember the scene where she puts the um, her bag at the bar and it shows close ups of these people's faces who are yeah. unsuspecting. They didn't do anything, but. This is where they feel like they've been led to. This is what they feel like they have to do to get their point across. And of course, they give time to say, this is how a revolution starts, but this isn't how you win it. Like, you don't win it with violence. Mm -hmm. Can I just go on a slight tangent with that bar scene, only to talk about how much I love that scene? 
yeah. and the way that um, Pontecorvo sort of used timing and editing and sort of set you up with that bar scene you know she puts the bag down you see all the patrons dancing or whatever and then it cuts outside and there's an explosion but it's not the bar that's exploded it's a yeah. gas leak in a different building and you think oh okay these people are going to be okay boom no now they're dead you know it's a he really just he just set it up well he he built you up and thinking okay and then there's your explosion then you're thinking all oh, right okay it wasn't the innocent people dancing no wait it is you know it that was just Very a really, yeah. It, it was just a really, really. It, it was a. It was probably the most cinematic scenes, um, or sequences in, in the film. A lot of it, like we said, is sort of shot newsreel style on the streets, people talking, close ups, especially in the Casbah. Everything's sort of really close and tight and claustrophobic. Um, but this was like a really, yeah, like I said, Hitchcockian. I didn't, I didn't even think of that to now, but yeah, super Hitchcockian. Um, probably the most cinematic scene or sequence in the film, and I really, I, I really enjoyed that. Sorry, just a kind of tangent on that, but no, I wanted to mention scene, that scene. So, yeah, yeah, just in, that that one just really stuck with me in particular from the whole film. So, the, the, kind of on this point, so the hero of this film is Ali Lapointe, right? I mean, I'm, there's multiple kind of heroes from the Algerian side. I think even heroes kind of. Um, and he's kind the of, really violent. He's the one who likes the violence. That makes sure. Yeah, hero. Yeah, I think hero's kind of great. I suppose. Look, the film. He's know, the one you're stationed on mostly. Yeah, yeah, and like he's the leader of the FLN, which is essentially again just to make this sort of to link this to Ireland because this is how I was doing a lot of it. He's like they're kind of like the IRA mm-hmm. of where you know they have a righteous idea at heart but they're kind of going about it a very um extremist way um uh, yeah ali lapointe so i kind of struggle to call him a hero per se but yeah he's the leader of the sort of liberation um side of things good 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 correction you're right yeah hero is definitely the wrong choice of point <laughs> um but he uh you know and then he, there's the person who recruits him right and i can't remember the guy's name unfortunately right now um but Everybody in this, so I think the way that they lay out the strategy where everybody has teams of three and you never know more than three people that are involved in the revolution. Um, and you see the way that you they the recruiting is done into women and children. So you have this deep network that goes into the community. And I felt that it was very uh, well done of conveying how hard it would be to go combat this if you're from the French side, right? Because like it's it's women and children that are dropping bombs off and, and trading information and bringing things to different places at, at the right just the right time you know uh, carrying a gun if there's a, if there's a bullet like taking the gun and and hiding it and bringing it off to somebody else like this is really the exciting is not the right word but the the energizing side of guerrilla warfare if you're if you're the person and in, in, like if you're in the guerrilla side of things right it's the confusion it's the sort of you know smoke and mirrors it's the obfuscation of of of, of warfare in, in a way that is so interesting to see. And I think it's, it would be hard to make that, uh, to, to, to portray that in a film. And that's what I was so amazed at is how he actually did it. And, and all these webs sort of made sense, even though it was from the French side and must have been incredibly confusing to, to be a part of. Especially because they're essentially behind enemy lines. So, yeah. you know, it's almost kind of like to put it in a modern context, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know, kids walking up to soldiers in Afghanistan with IEDs, you know, that kind of thing to put into a more modern context. But 
yeah, like the scenes in the Casbah in, in Kasbah, um, were, were really well put together. Um, I suppose when you're shooting on location, the Casbah, you don't really have much of a choice but to go very tight and, and narrow. But um, yeah. it's it's still it's it still works um, from a cinema cinema cinema. Yeah, I've lost my word. From a cinematic point of view, it still it still really works to sort of convey that idea, especially as the film goes on, the French are really closing in on the leaders of the liberation front. You know, it really helps to sort of bring in the the paranoia and the fact that, you know, the, the sort of walls are closing in on you. If that makes sense. Well, and it doesn't help either, at least from the French side, that, you know, you have the women who wear the hijabs, which I think there's a different term now, but how are you going to identify that? Like, she was wearing a covering. So, and and yeah. culturally, you never look under the covering, right? Like that's right. A big, they they made a yeah. point to even show that in the movie. You don't mm-hmm. touch them. You don't look yeah. under their covering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Which you know, there, there were little things like that when we were talking about the French side that was really interesting. Like the idea to appear, especially to because media is such a big part in this, to appear. Hey, we'll give you your fair trial. Hey, we'll give you the respect you have for your religion. We'll give you this and that. When we also get to see under the, you know, behind the scenes that they're interrogations and yeah, you have innocent people dying, but is that the real price that needs to be paid for that? Like these people, they showed a few scenes of it, like the guy who's like on the rack and he's like doubled over basically and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that stuff like that was is tough to watch as well uh, to see. And I think it made it interesting from both sides maybe just one more quick point on both sides so if you if you kind of think about the what the fln was fighting for it's a very uh mm, conservative sort of religious state right in the sense of uh no alcohol right that people are publicly shamed if they drink um i I don't know exactly you know like the the women covering like so it's interesting also i think from the perspective of and i don't really want to get into my personal views on this but i think it makes the film very layered and interesting to think about that fight for freedom, even if it, like the country deserves to be free, the people in that country deserve to dictate the rules of that country, right? Like the people that, you know, Algeria is not a new nation. Like it's a thousands of year old, like, like it's been around since for a long time and they get to run the country the way they want, even if it's different from, in this case, France was actually bringing in like a, I guess morally, like a much more liberal kind of looser, free Western sort of society. Right. And they were wanting to go move away from that into a more kind of conservative, maybe I, I don't know if it specifically calls out religious, but for sure, morally much more conservative kind of society. Uh, and yeah, they did. They did mention at one point they wanted it to be like, a, you know, a Muslim land. OK, yeah. And that's just another interesting layer to kind of think about when you're talking about this. Right. And the fight for freedom, like freedom for what? The the people may have there, there was going to be a choice. Yeah. yeah, but it's yeah. their choice. Right. So anyways. Yeah, their their fight to have, you know. I guess it's is there a point when you're governed by someone you don't agree with or governed by a choice you don't have? And I think that's like the heart of revolutions in general. Like, you know, there's a big thing like um, a little off topic, but in like there's an example in a musical. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but 1776 is about the American Revolution. And one of the characters, Ben Franklin, of course, pretty famous. I'm sure you've heard of him, hopefully. Um, you know, they bring up the question, well, what's wrong with being a English citizen? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with being an English citizen. I've given the rights as such. And yeah. 
you know, that's that that's revolutions in a nutshell. Like it's nothing wrong with the mother country necessarily. It's wrong that we don't get the choice or we don't get the same rights or anything else. Yeah. Uh, one thing just to bring up, because obviously this film essentially pits France versus Algeria. No sort of really gray area there. But back in France, this was a much huger issue. Um there yeah. were there were straight up protests about how the Algerians were being treated and wanting France to pull out of Algeria. You see it actually mentioned a lot in, in French New Wave films in the 60s. You know, Goddard brings it up quite a bit. You'll hear like news reels about the war in Algeria. And um, so it definitely the, the more sort of left leaning populace of France wanted just to pull out of Algeria, where it was the more right wing people who wanted to sort of keep things as they were, keep Algeria under control, keep the colonialism up. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like obviously this film really does kind of put France versus Algeria when back in France, it was, it, it wasn't that simple. A lot, a lot of people were, were against how the Algerians were being treated. Even in the film club, we've seen elevator to the gallows. He was a celebrated a quote unquote celebrated war hero from the battle in Algeria, right? Yeah, oh yes, right. he was. Yeah, for yes. Us. You're, you're, Chris you're, has got you're, such a, a much better memory than I do. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're right. And um, there's always there, there's always talk of gun running, gun running as well. Um, I think in in Poirot Le Fou, um, Anna Karina's character is a gun runner to, for freedom fighters in the Algerian War, if mm. I'm remembering it correctly. So um, yeah, it comes up in French New Wave films quite a bit. One. Um connection i did make during this and it it may be off base but um parts of it reminded me a lot of close-up and i don't know if it's because we're dealing with that part of the world or um anything like that but i i guess it's almost like that faux documentary style to it though i I had my issues with close-up this one i felt connected much better like um one thing i think is really fascinating that the u.s had to do was when they finally screened this film it was to have a thing up front that says there were no actual news uh, news segments in this film. Like there, this there, this is not a news broadcast, and I think that's really fascinating. It gets confusing if you don't really know the history because it's the people that were involved in the conflict, right? But as I said, yeah, a lot of the cast were. It was it was real people who were there. Which brings to my last fun fact, and I'll stop. So apparently, the guy who they show getting decapitated by the guillotine. Um, they chose him because he was on death in Algeria uh, to be beheaded. I thought you were going to say because he was actually beheaded and they sewed his head back on and reanimated him. That would be way more impressive. And like, okay, yeah, you're going to have to do this again for us, buddy. We didn't get it on the first take. <laughs> we didn't get a good take. Yeah. <laughs> Someone get Dr. Frankenstein in. We need to get this guy reanimated stat. <laughs> So, and I think it makes these type of films interesting when you get these people who have this personal connection. Like, you almost feel like, like, well, is that like a conflict of interest? But it seems to work more than it doesn't. Yeah, and if you like that, like, I think you'll enjoy uh, Rossellini's neorealist films. Um, the ones he made, especially in the 40s, he has what's called the War Trilogy mm-hmm. that Criterion put out in a set, which is Roma, Open City, which is a fantastic film. Paisan and Germany Year Zero. Um, okay. If you like this, like they're they're all sort of very different. Um, like Rome Open City is probably closer to this in terms of like subject matter. Well, yeah, subject matter. Um, 
Paisan is kind of more closer to it stylistically because it has that sort of newsreels, but Paisan is essentially a collection of different stories. It's like a, an, an anthology almost. Mm-hmm. And then Germany Year Zero is sort of takes place in Germany post-war, um, kind of like a 400 Blows kind of film, but this young boy sort of dealing with the hardships of post-Germany, uh, post-war Germany. Um, but they're all shot in a very similar sort of neo-realist style, as they called it. Um, if, if you enjoyed this film, and just you guys and to listeners, if you haven't checked out Rossellini's War Trilogy, it's been, they're all fantastic films. Do you know if it's on the channel? I, I would be surprised if they're not. I, I can't okay. say absolutely certainly that they are because I have them. I own them physically from BFI. Um, did, a, did the Region B release for them? Um, actually, saying that, now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure I did watch Paisan on the channel. I, I will happily check for you. Um, I, I appreciate that. I'll just say one more thing, too. You know, we've talked a lot about this being like a neorealistic kind of style and tied it, the, the relations to the French New Wave and, and, and the, the impact that the Algerian War had in France and general culture really. But the, the one thing that I think makes this film stand out to me more than just a really interesting timepiece or really other historical kind of document is I feel like it has the same energy as like a William Friedkin or like, an, like one of these kind of 70s like, you know, like I'm thinking of like the conversation or the French connection or like one of these kind of crime films where there's a lot of tension built into the movie. I think this movie maintains that tension extremely well. And it's a very, again, I hate to use the word exciting. I need to think of a better word, but it just, it has, it has it your chaotic almost. Has a kin- kinetic energy is what I would kinetic. say. Like. Very good. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and I think it does that better than a lot of the other historical kind of based you know narratives that we've seen like it, it really holds that tension well throughout the entire runtime i wonder if that's you know one of the reasons it's actually right you know we were talking about that it you know surprised that it's up as high even though we all like it but it has and adam's kind of talked about this too being cinematic in that thing i mean there's tons of exploit there's a ton of action in this like yeah yeah you know you could see somebody taking the subject matter and saying and no offense to anyone who does this in their movies but like Let's make this as almost as dry as possible. We can't afford the explosions. We're not going to do it. But this, hey, if you don't really like even I'm, I'm sure anyone who watches this will care somewhat about what happened. But if you're not like totally invested in historical context, it's just a kind of a fun watch in a way. Yeah. Like from the from that set point. At least very engaging. <laughs> yeah. Engaging might be better than fun. <laughs> Uh, is it on the channel, Adam? Are you still looking? The War Trilogy is indeed on the channel, uh, along with a lot of other Rossellini films. So, um, yeah, uh, definitely check out the War Trilogy if you like. If you like the Battle of Algiers and you want to sort of in, engage more with that neo-realist style, um, War Trilogy is definitely a good starting point. And now we're coming to the end of the podcast, which, as always, means that we're going to look at any other business. Just a quick shout out to some films that we've seen recently they don't have to be criterion related they don't even have to be good just something you've seen that you liked we want to give a quick shout out to um i'm gonna just hop in with mine first um i i am gonna talk about something i did watch in the criterion channel um really fantastic collection of documentary short films by a guy called Vittorio de Seta. um 
I had never heard of him, this guy before. I'd never heard of his films before. But this collection came on to the Criterion Channel through the Film Foundation um, series that they're running. You know, films that are restored by the Film Foundation. Yeah. And the the thumbnail just really drew me in as this like beautiful sunset. And I thought, okay, this looks cool. Let me look at this. And I noticed there's ten films. Nine out of ten are between eleven and or ten and eleven minutes long. There's one that's 20 minutes long. I thought, okay, well, this would be cool. Let me just watch like one or two of these and see if they're any good. They just completely blew me away. They are as simple as a film can be. They are literally just slice of life. It's just Vittorio De Seta with a camera meeting different people from Italy, different walks of life, farmers, shepherds, fishermen, you know, people in villages. It's, it's as simple a film as it can possibly be. But it's just so stunningly beautiful. I will hand up and say these are the most beautiful looking films I've ever seen in my life. Wow. They're all shot on 35 millimeter. And they just there's just something about the grain and the colors and whatever they did during the processing afterwards, the, the, the grading. It's just they're just absolutely stunning. Um, I watched all I, I, I practically binged all 10 i was kind of planning on watching i i planned on maybe watching one or one or two and then that became three and then four and then five and i just i just ended up binging the set because they were just so engaging there's no dialogue there's no narrator as each one starts it gives you a little bit of context about who we're going to be with and then it just lets life play out and honestly it's just it's just so pure and that's just the best way I can describe this. They're just so pure. There's no narrative. He's not trying to tell you something. He just wants you to experience the small slice of life. And then there, you're done. You've had this. And like each one is almost like a day in the life of a certain job or a certain person or a certain society. It's just, you know, this is their life. This is what happens. There you go. Well, Move on with your day. But they've just stuck with me, and honestly, just visually, pure, purely visually speaking, I don't. If you don't, if you don't really care about slice of life kind of stuff, or you know, documentaries that don't really have a point, I suppose the best way to say, purely from a cinematic or cinema, cinematographic and a photographic point of view, everyone should watch these films just to experience how beautiful film can look compared to like digital. No digital film, no digital camera will ever be able to capture. What 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 the set I was able to capture with film, um. So even if you just watch like one or two, it they're honest, they're so worth it just to experience pure cinematic beauty. It reminds me of you. You talked about this film, and this was several episodes back. But there was one about a director who basically it was almost like a cinematography reel, but I can't remember what it was called. Oh, are you talking about Man with a Movie Camera? Yes, that's it. Yeah, that's a super fun. That's that's a great film. That's a film I was really afraid of watching because it is literally just a guy with a movie camera and he just puts it in certain places and just lets life fly by. No, a man with a movie camera is way more technical than these films, mm-hmm. just in terms of like the cinema, the cinematic techniques and the editing techniques that they employ. These are very, very different from that point of view, but it's the same sort of idea. It's just sort of capturing life. Um, but the set is a bit Good more... Yeah, exactly. There's no plan. Just yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, 
with uh, I can't remember the the director's name who did Mamma the Movie Camera, but so much of that is very very technical, and I've got to think a lot of it was planned out. Whereas the Seta is kind of just more folksy. Um, it's just out like a lot of the stuff actually. Uh, we're we're gonna. This is kind of like almost like a sneak peek for next episode. But you know, a lot of the, the sort of way the landscape and stuff was captured in Harlan County mm-hmm. um, was was kind of sort of captured similarly in these films. Um, it's just a beautiful area. It's not hard to to, uh, to photograph. Don't worry. Well, this is it. You know, and and <laughs> Deseda picked his place as well for these short films as well. He he didn't go anywhere ugly, um, to to mm-hmm. film these. Um, but yeah, if like even if you just watch a couple, if you have a spare half an hour, just watch like the first two or three, and you'll you'll probably end up like me and just end up binging all of them because they're just uh, too beautiful to not look at. I might do that soon. That sounds pretty cool, actually. They're so chill to watch as well. They're 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 so low maintenance. It's literally just kind of like shutting your brain off and just like just just sort of immersing yourself in this world for ten minutes. It's not like there, like there's no story to follow. You know, if you look at your phone for a minute and come back, you're not going to be lost. So, you know, there's, there's no story. It's honestly, it's just, it's really good. It's just a really good palate cleanser. You'd mm. almost like if you were watching like a, like a Belladonna of Sadness or a Fat Girl, you know, one of these to throw on afterwards for 10 minutes. It's just a nice palate cleanser. I might even actually end up just doing that next time I watch like a rough film. I was like, okay, I'm just going to try on one of these now. Although, to be fair, one of these is actually pretty brutal. There's the second one called Sea Countrymen, which is about fishermen capturing um, fish. And they're, they're kind of brutal in their methods on how they do it. And things are kind of bloody. Right? Um, yeah, and, you know, they're sort of putting hooks in them and things like that. And they're all sort of writhing around. Um, so maybe that one's not as much of a palate cleanser, but some of the other ones are just really good just to sort of just kick back and just immerse yourself in this world for 10 minutes. Um, yeah, I don't want to take up the whole segment anyway. Um, Zach, what, what have you seen? Uh, I guess the one I'll talk about is uh, I began trying to get more into Zilla Whiskey. I'm not even going to pretend to pronounce the first name since there's a random Z in there. And Andre. <laughs> Yeah, I think but, it's just Andre. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay, just, so the Z is silent. Polish okay. Polish names are super weird. Yeah, but um, I watched Possession um, from '81 earlier this year. Fantastic film. We'll talk about that one too much, but it's really probably a lot more. At least from the two films I watched, it's the much more accessible one. Mm-hmm. But the one I watched recently was on the Silver Globe, which was one of the I believe, if I remember correctly, one of the last films he did in Poland. Specifically because Pol- when he was four-fifths of the way done with the film, they seized it, and he couldn't finish it. Yeah. He just had no way to finish the film. Um, so in this, he's taken that footage, the four-fifths, when he got it back, and he has narr- decided just to narrate the scenes he didn't get to, which is mostly a lot of stuff at the beginning. So it's a little jarring at the beginning when you're like, so this uh, spaceship crashes, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll go with it. <laughs> now we have dead people. Um, but he, he explains it pretty well. He's not over intrusive. Um, and it, it and his narration actually does give a little education towards the end when he kind of puts himself into the film once it's all over. Um, because I think for him, it was partially a political message as well. Though the story itself is about the in the future and almost like this. I'm not going to call apocalyptic, but this movie is very apocalyptic, just not here on our home. So it's about these astronauts who find this place that is Earth-like, but there's no one really there. So it goes over generations of them basically repopulating 
well, repopulating this planet for the first time and just kind of watching how this society develops. And it's almost like, you know, when kids would get like, um, what do you call the cult, the, the bacteria culture things where you would like watch them in Petri dishes and stuff and kind of see how they grow and how ant yeah. cultures do. It, it, it's a similar concept to that, but it's almost putting like a mirror to how we've developed as a society, how violent we, you know, we began and, you know, kind of questions the idea of not necessarily culture, but sophistication in the sense that, you know, oh, we're nonviolent, which is almost to what I feel like he's saying is it's almost paradoxical to that. I won't get too much into that, but it's really beautifully shot. It's so eerie. Like the whole thing has almost this horror film vibe to it that I think he uses in a lot of his stuff and very, a lot of violent imagery to it. It's very mm-hmm. long, even at four, only four fifths of being done. It's over two and a half hours. So it's, <laughs> you're just glad they didn't finish the whole thing um but i i really recommend it it was it was a lot of fun i would say probably watch possession first just to kind of get an idea but it's made me want to go in and buy the rest of mondo vision stuff because that's I really all i want to see stuff i really want to see possession i feel like we've had this conversation before on the yeah. podcast i really want to see possession but there's it, this, it's yeah. yeah it's 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 a one of those movies and i think chris just recently watched possession for the first time it's like a sl- it's like a you don't really want to call it a descent into madness because it almost feels like, okay, this is getting worse. And then it just gets so much worse, like all at once, like not in a worse as the movie's bad, just like yeah. how much madness it goes yeah. towards the end. Yeah. I, I mean, possession was, was not, I loved, I loved it, but it's like a very, uh, somebody in our, in our discord called it a very particular type of acting. And I think that's true. It's a very, all the characters are very manic from the beginning of the movie and very frenetic in their energy. And it just kind of gets even crazier as it, as it goes in. But um, it's beautiful though. It's in, in a weird way, it's a very beautiful film and very, very artistic. And like, there's this moving kind of like steady cam tracking shots that follow like a lot of the characters around. It's kind of unsettling anyways. Yeah, I really, I did, I just saw it. I've been thinking about it a lot. I really loved it. Uh, I've actually been trying to, I've been missing some horror. A lot of the stuff I've been seeing is, um, Either like the art house stuff, which obviously I love, or like the super low budget shot on VHS stuff that I, I do like, I do appreciate. Um, but I haven't had just like a good horror run in a while. So um, I saw a possession, I was curious about that. And then I revisited the Reanimator series. So I'll talk about that. I don't know the last time that you all have seen Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, and then Beyond Reanimator. Long time. Long never, time. never seen any of them. Yeah, it had been a long time for me as well. They aged really well. Like, I really, I love that series. Uh, Brian, uh, Stuart Gordon did the first one, and then Brian Usna came in and did the second and third one. Um, Brian Usna did Society. Did y'all ever see that? The one with the ass face? Uh, uh, I, I mean, know what you're talking about. Yeah, I had a feeling of the right thing, if I'm thinking of the right thing. Yeah, kind of. It, it's Yes, basically, yes. Um, okay, that's, yeah. all I, that's all I know about that film. There's an ass face in it. Um, but Yuzna doesn't mind taking things in kind of a crazy direction. So Reanimator is pretty straightforward in the sense of it's like a fun kind of uh, creative retelling of a Frankenstein um, set in a modern times, kind of a mad scientist guy, what that would look like. Then in Bride of Reanimator, Yuzna comes in and introduces some of his kind of drug-induced uh, <laughs> creativity. So 
like the character from the first movie comes back and he, he puts bat wings on his ears and he like flaps around kind of like an evil bat that's just a head and he's causing creating havoc. Uh, and, and they, and the, they kind of piece together bodies in really like ugly and, and kind of funny ways. Um, and then beyond reanimator, it all takes place in a prison, kind of like one of the alien movies where, what is it? Alien three or whatever, where they end up on a, um, yeah. Alien three. Right, prison planet. Yeah, yeah, they end up on an all-male prison. So alien, uh, so beyond reanimators, all in a prison. Um, uh, yeah, they're, they're very creative horror movies. Very unique. It's, I think, it's in some ways it might be hard to tell a, a a unique story in the horror genre. Just so many movies in that constantly getting pumped out. I think this one they did it right. I love, and I don't think the movies have a big drop off. Beyond reanimator, probably people would say is the biggest drop off. I wouldn't argue with that, but it's still a fun, entertaining movie and. Uh, yeah, I, I always joke about calling in Usna we trust, but I just think the guy's good at horror and, and he, he understands how to make things wacky and entertaining and and uh, yeah, so big big fan of that series. Have you seen his movie Dagon? I have not yet. No, no, it's it's him going back to like some Lovecraftian stuff. It's it's you watch it, give it a chance. I, I think you'd like it. Yeah, I, everything I've seen from him, I like, so I will for sure. But um, no, that's it. I, the only other thing I'll mention just in quick passing is I have two movies left, uh, Intervista and Voices of the Moon are the two movies I have left to complete my Fellini run. So um, probably not by the time this airs, but very soon uh, in the next two weeks for sure, I'm going to have my Fellini rankings up. Um, and uh, I'm going to do before the end of the year, I've decided I'm going to just get it out of the way and do my Jodorowsky run. So I still need won't... Adam to finish uh, Bergman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that hasn't gone too well. Um, it's I, I don't know how you do these director runs. You know, I started it with the with the Fritz Lang and I watched mm-hmm. like nothing but Fritz Lang for like two weeks and I'm like, I fucking hate Fritz Lang now. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the, it's taken me like seven months to get through Fellini's films and he only has. Yeah. I was just joking. Me, I don't obviously hate happen? Fritz Lang, but yeah. <laughs> well, what happens to me? I've done Carpenter this year. I went through all of his again, mm-hmm. and um, what I would and I did it for Kubrick. I still haven't finished my Kubrick run. I got through eleven of his thirteen, but I always stop when there's like two left, and I'm like, I'll come back. And I just it takes me like months. Like I finally did it with Carpenter. I had like two left, and I finally finished that. And then with Kubrick, I got to Full Metal Jacket, and I'm like, fuck that. Yeah, like ah, watch the first do. hour and then turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta push through. No, do it. Just push through. You're so close. Uh, no. so I've seen bad, Full Metal though. Jacket. It's why I'm like, ah, it's never been one of my favorites. Nah, no, the second I mean, half is so bad. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I just have to intersperse it with other stuff. There's no way I could watch 24 Fellini movies in a month. Like I would, I would lose total interest. It's the same. Yeah. So many themes are, are, are repeat, I guess, between the movies that it's like you just kind of too mentally tune out because you're like, well, I just saw this, you know. So I, I I try to give them enough space and sort of I figure out when I'm ready for the next one. And sometimes it's three days. This Intervista movie is literally just an interview with him. So I imagine like the time between this and Voices of the Moon is going to be short. But, you know, after Satyricon and then Roma was next, I couldn't just jump straight in. Like, I can't just go like. I can't do that just back to back. It's too much. So anyway, that's that, kind of that was probably my issue. I tried to go back to back and lost all interest. Yeah, totally. 
Um, next year, I already have it set up. I'm going to do Wong Kar Wai. So I think I'm going to give myself, I'm going to do Jodorowsky and kind of hate myself for four months. Uh, even though there's only eight or nine movies, I'm not looking forward to it, but I am morbidly curious. And then uh, I'm going to give myself a little break and then dive into Kar Wai. Yeah, I hope you have that uh, original copy of Chung King, you know, when you go through it. <laughs> this fucking Not guy. bragging or anything. This fucking guy with his $20 copy of Chung King. Seriously. <laughs> I finally felt that vindication I see on Reddit all the time. Look what I found at Goodwill for two dollars. Like, Thank you so much. Yeah. I wonder how many of those guys lie. Like, like I think it's a lie. They probably paid like two hundred dollars on eBay, and then it is like stuck a Goodwill sticker on it. That's yeah. why I left the sticker on mine. I was like, here's proof <laughs> I found it for that much. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, look before we wrap up this episode, um, I'm just gonna give a quick shout out to something that is still in the works at the time of recording but will be live as you are listening to it um, over the last couple of weeks we undertook a little bit of a project um, inspired by you know they shoot pictures that we referenced a lot on the podcast and uh, the likes of Bia, our uh, sight and sound with their top 250 we decided that we were going to compile the they live by film top 100 films so the way we did this is we literally got suggestions from friends family members people in our discord we went on to reddit to different subreddits and got suggestions the amount of people that replied to us was almost overwhelming we got around about 500 submissions over a thousand films over a thousand individual films were were nominated to try and vie for a spot in this top 100 which uh, we have narrowed down and we are compiling the list currently and will be live on the website as you're listening to it right now. So um, if you're interested to find out what the top 100 films is, according to They Live By Film, uh, go to theylivebyfilm.com, go to the list section and you'll see it right there. And then without giving away spoilers about what's actually on the list, I think I think all three of us are really happy with how it turned out. There's a really great mix. There's always a danger when you do these lists. Are they going to be too academic? Are they going to be too popular? And I think we found a really good balance um, with with, our, with this list here. So uh, <laughs> we won't we won't give hints over certain films that um, that we've previously shot on. Uh, <laughs> showing up in our top 100 list. Um, now I will warn everyone. There was a different number one, and it was images, but Adam refused to put it on there. So I just know that was the true number one. Was I, thought I, I need to up my bribing fees. <laughs> <laughs> just a disclaimer, images was not voted. Not a single vote went to Robert Altman picture images. I was um, tempted to put it in my number one just to spite you. <laughs> uh, look, that, that wraps up this episode, guys. So like I said, go to theylivebyfilm.com, into the list section, and yeah, look at our top 100 and see what you think. Uh, yeah, that, that wraps up this episode. Thanks, guys.